Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc., Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. I went to a funeral today of a, another old colleague, and sadly, that's when you catch up with most of your old colleagues. And of course, we're going to be talking about funerals later. Tom, before we do that, I wanted to recap a bit here, because you and I were chatting in the first episode of Crime Time Inc. about the child abduction, and we were talking about the setup of the murder squad. Now, that's something that people hear on television all the time, and they see it in films. But generally, what they see are glimpses, phrases, murder team, squad of detectives, etc. I'm very conscious that we should take advantage of the fact that we've got a real-life expert here, because you were the senior investigating officer in many, many murders and serious crimes, who set up teams to investigate these major crimes and catch these criminals, and got the, the teams of detectives invested in that process very much a team-building exercise. For my part, I was part of many of those teams and remember poignantly the bonds that were forged whilst working in these inquiries. I'll give you an example. In my book, I talk about the Anna Kenny murder, of which I was a very fringe player back in 1979 as a young beat cop down in Campbelltown in Argyll, near to Skipness, where the remains of Anna were recovered. I remember at the end of the story that I wrote about that I had kind of made light of the serious crime squad because of what I saw them as. I actually called them the serious drinking squad because to a young cop, I saw their antics at night. I saw them in their downtime. And at the end of the story, I was thinking, I've made very light of what these guys were doing because what I do remember very distinctly is how serious they were and how dedicated they were to the task. The amount of hours that they put into that inquiry were incredible and how respectful, I always remember how respectful they were of Anna Kenny and her family, who had been murdered two years previously, of course. It was Anna's skeleton that was found in a shallow grave near to a very small village of Skipness in a very remote part of Argyll. I wondered if you would give us here, our listeners, an insight into how these squads, the kind of detectives you were looking for, uh, not just detectives, but the people that formed the administration team, how all of that is put together, how, who you, would you pick as part of your murder squad, and how you form that team ethic and go about the business of catching killers. Much later on, it's for another story, but I was involved in Anna Kenny many, many years later as part of the Angus Sinclair investigation, which hopefully we'll cover in another series. In my day, it was a, a murder. There was no permanent murder squad. Murder squads were formed as and when they were required. Usually, 
divisional detective chief inspector uh, ran them. He was the officer in charge, the SIO. And the serious crime squad, of which I was a part, supported the division. So usually the senior investigating officer was the local detective chief inspector and the deputy SIO was the, the serious crime squad detective inspector, which was me. It was a huge privilege at that time to be seconded to a murder squad because it was a it was a professional compliment. It was a mark that you could do the business, that you were trustworthy, that you were highly rated. So it was a, it was a huge compliment. And people, uh, I have many memories and, and made many very close friendships with people who I worked with on that, these very, very intense investigations. And you'll remember, Simon, how intense they were. I mean, it was absolutely focus with all your energy on solving this crime. And I remember we had um, conferences twice a day, once at the beginning of the day, once at the end. And you were desperate to get in for the early morning conference to see what jobs, to see what actions you were going to get, whether you were going to get good ones or bad ones. And then at the end of the day, you were desperate to get there in case somebody had made a breakthrough. And so it was like waiting to see the headline news when you know something very important was happening. It was that kind of that kind of excitement. Can I just explain a wee bit there, Tom, about these actions that we call them? I'm very conscious that when we uh, use jargon, it's common sense to you and I in its everyday language, but not to everyone. Now, an action would be generated by the incident room, the incident room's the administrative centre of a major inquiry. And that action is a, a written document that is produced by the system and handed to a detective, uh, usually working in twos. And he then goes and carries out that action. What the detectives then go and do, they're going to go out and chap doors or they're going to go out and interview someone. So those actions are generated uh, mostly from previous statements. So, for example, I might have gathered a statement from a woman who said that she was home that night. She heard noises in a stairwell. And she thought it was about nine o'clock or thereabouts was of something she was watching on television. That statement then is in the administrative system of the major inquiry. And whoever it is that reads it, it comes to the attention of the clerks in the instant room who, using their own initiative or are referring it upline to the senior investigating officer, it might generate another few actions. For example, they might need to corroborate it. They might need to go and explore what those noises might have been. They need to stand up that statement and test the veracity of it as much as they can. So the action might be go back and speak to the woman again and get a longer statement from her, more detailed. Very valuable now that she's a chance to think about it and she's maybe spoke to her spouse about it or whatever. It might be to go and speak to everybody else uh, within the common close or in the neighbourhood. It may well be to go and liaise with the house-to-house -house team who are doing door-to-door -door inquiries in that area to cross-reference what other people heard and saw and see if she was interviewed separately from that and to see what other neighbours have been saying along those lines at that time, at that particular time in the evening. It may be to go and track down the whole shooting match just to cover the whole thing and find out what those noises were. Or it could be to speak to her husband, who is estranged but had been round that night, as far as possible. Pin the whole thing down to the minute, if possible. Very often, we would use prompts like newspapers and television programmes and, and schedules of events, clubs, whatever might be going on in someone's life. 
to try and pin down that time and date as much as possible. So that's what an action would be that's handed to a detective, and it's what drives the inquiry forward and determines the direction of travel of the inquiry, those actions and priority of them. From my statement from the neighbour saying that she heard noises at 1029, then there might be another action comes from that to go and see another detective or go and see what the nuances of the inquiry are. We were pursuing hundreds of these actions at one time in a major inquiry. That's right. And sometimes actions were were long-lasting. I mean, sometimes it was, you know, trace the red car. Much, much better if you were were given an action where where it had some meat in it. I was always conscious that with that incredible privilege, and it was a privilege to be a member of a murder squad. I mean, many, many police officers have had very good, successful careers, and have never had the opportunity to work on a murder investigation. And it's the very, very pinnacle of police work because there is no more serious crime than the crime of murder. So to be part of that team was a privilege, but it also was a tremendous responsibility. As time went on and as the crime remained unsolved, you began to doubt yourself. You began to wonder whether you'd made a mistake. Had you overlooked something? Had somebody pulled the wool over your eyes? And that self-doubt, that leads to, I mean, I, I used to routinely wake in the early hours with a sudden thought. I took to having a pen and pad beside my bed to write it down, otherwise I wouldn't be able to go back to sleep again. And these things creep in, these doubts creep in. You mentioned the, the conferences there, Tom, the two conferences a day. I would have called them briefings, but it's the same thing. We would come in at 8 o'clock in the morning, everybody had slept on the previous day's uh, debriefing, and everybody had a different angle on what they'd been doing the day before. They had a new perspective, they'd been reborn overnight, if you like because they'd had a change of shirt and suit and had a shower, hopefully. They were fed and watered and ready to go again with a whole new enthusiasm. But the main thing is that everybody had slept on it and their subconscious had been working on the inquiry overnight. And the ideas in the morning that would spring from that were sometimes very, very vibrant and sometimes very fruitful as well. That's right. Absolutely. I remember being very, very conscious of the responsibility on several occasions. If you happened to be the person who had to take the next of kin to the mortuary to identify the body of their their loved one, um, there was a real sense there of responsibility that you had to sort this, that it was your job to get justice for this person who was lying in the tray. Because if you didn't, nobody else would. All the smart lawyers and judges, all the smart forensic scientists, they couldn't do their job unless you did yours. I remember feeling that. And the other time where this was very, very present in my memory is when you attended the funeral of the victim. Bodies were retained by the procurator fiscal because if there was an imminent arrest, then the defence agent for the suspect had, a, had a, the opportunity to do a post-mortem as well for cause of death. So the bodies were retained for quite some time, but eventually, after a month or so, for decency's sake, they were released for burial. And I'm sure it was the same in your neck of the woods. The divisional commander for the area always attended in uniform, along with either the SIO or the deputy SIO. And I was at many of funerals like that. And But the one I remember most was the was the murder of the wee girl we're talking about now, Susan Maxwell. 
Susan's family were, were a farming family, very well known, very well regarded. And there was a huge turnout for that funeral service. It was a lovely day in a countryside graveyard with throngs of people and seeing this little white coffin being taken to the graveside. And um, there was a almost a, a, an audible anguish in the air. It was a mixture of fear, sorrow, grief, anger, and it was all mixed together into what I would call anguish. And it was tangible. You could feel it. And I was accompanied by some senior colleagues, and one or two of them just couldn't take it. They felt weighed down by responsibility because one of them told me, he said, I, I feel I've failed. I've failed. And this, this girl, one of my little girls, has been murdered. I have failed. And he was, he was inconsolable. And I know what he meant because when you're in that situation, all eyes turn to you as being the people that are going to sort this out. And I remember that very, very clearly, that particular funeral. And that, that sense of anguish, which you could almost touch it, you could feel it, you could smell it, it was there. That large group of people grieving for the loss of young Susan. And as I say, it's something, uh, something you never forget. Tom, it also brings home that the police are taking so much for granted. If you had solved that within a few days or a week, then it would have been, ah, well, that's the job to do that. That's what they're expected to do and paid to do. But when it's not solved, and at that time it wasn't solved very quickly, unfortunately, and there were other incidents thereafter that were linked to it that we'll discuss in future, the whole spotlight, the whole media spotlight, everybody else in the world can point the finger at the police and say, well, what is it you're not doing? Why haven't you solved this yet? The blame is laid at the doorstep of the police, without question. As it makes the press, as, as it does with a victim like Susan, so you got all the, the psychics and the, the visionaries coming forward. You get the lunatics writing in, oh, dear, preserve me from them, preserve me. And all the time, these card indexes are growing by the hundred every day. And as they grow... So the error factor grows and you are at more and more risk as you go forward. It's quite interesting because one statement, maybe a two or three page statement, uh, normally statements would be much bigger than that, of course, but that in itself could generate a dozen actions from that one statement. At the early stage of an inquiry, the curve is like that, isn't it? The work is just increasing and has to be prioritised in some way and streamlined uh, towards what are hopefully going to be the most profitable lines of inquiry and the most urgent lines of inquiry. And then you get the media and you get the pressures from outside to add to that and try to distract you away from what the core investigation is. We're definitely having a pity party here about murder inquiries, Tom. But as you say, it was a great privilege to be involved in that, despite the responsibility and the, the undoubted stresses that it brought. If I could just go back to the funeral uh, we were talking about. I remember my very first post-mortem, Tom. I suppose everyone does. I was made to go to it by my sergeant and was told to go uh, and watch the whole thing. His name was Alec John McLennan. He was from Harris and his words to me, now I won't try the accent and make a fool of myself, but he told me to go and watch this post-mortem and said, don't worry if you're sick or upset or anything. Don't worry about that. That's the whole point. He said, if you can watch the whole thing and stay in the room, 
that will stand you in great stead for the rest of your service, son. And that's exactly what I did. He was absolutely right, of course. But I remember coming out of that post-mortem and I was fine. I, I, I hadn't uh, fainted or anything. And the mortuary attendant was opening the fridge from the big line of fridges outside the autopsy room. And the next one that he was taking out, because it's like a conveyor belt, as we know, uh, the next one was a tiny body, a wee baby, wrapped up. And that, to me, was much more poignant and upsetting than what I had just watched uh, of a whole post-mortem taking place. So when children are involved, the emotional level is raised, totally. But can I ask you a question about funerals, Tom? Because we used to send the IB to the funeral, the Identification Bureau, to some funerals. We used to have photographers who would plot themselves up hours before the funeral very discreetly with big lenses, sometimes up to half a mile away. And we would have cops ostensibly on traffic duty who were actually noting Reggie numbers and cars and faces and people that were turning up and people taking photographs of the mourners themselves because there was a well-known phenomenon that sometimes murderers and other criminals would turn up at funerals, especially criminal funerals where gangsters or drug dealers or whatever were being buried. And we were always there watching the associates. Uh, There was an absolute wealth of criminal intelligence for us at funerals. We never staged any, honestly, but uh, there was a wealth of intelligence there nonetheless. When I was out at Quantico, uh, this is later in the 80s, they said that if they had an unsolved murder, sexually motivated murder, and they had a burial, what they would do is they would set up cameras on the gravesite because on quite a few occasions, they'd had people coming back to the gravesite to relive the excitement and the pleasure of the crime. And it was in during one of their interviews, you know, you, you'll have seen the old Manhunter series about behavioural sciences and how they uh, interviewed all these um, serial killers. It came from that because one of these guys said, he said, oh, yeah, I said, um, I used to go back to the grave time and again and get off on the fact that I was back in control back at the gravesite. And so that was another trick that the FBI had developed. I actually caught an arsonist on the Isle of Butte when I was a detective in Rossing. He'd set a big truck on fire, it was, and it was one of a s- series of arson attacks. The truck had been full of hay, so it was quite a bonfire they had going. Uh, this guy had also previously set a hotel on fire and bins. He had worked his way up from the street bins, etc. And he was causing us a bit of a problem. And it's always the worry about what's going to come next, if there's going to be a loss of life involved. But I caught him because he came back to watch the fire. I was called out uh, as a matter of course, because I was the photographer and scenes a crime officer uh, in Rossi as well as the only detective. But uh, I went down and uh, didn't watch the fire like everyone else. I watched the crowd and from what I had observed there, managed to pinpoint involved. When I was a beat man, a beat cop, we had a very active little fire raiser, and I won't mention his name in case he's still alive, but he was always the person that, that phoned the fire brigade. He would approach the first officer at the scene and say, hello, my name is so-and-so, so-and-so. He had a little passport photo in case you wanted for the local papers, he said. <laughs> um, he was, uh, yeah, well, put it this way, I wish that it were all as easy to catch as he was. You spoke about Susan and her funeral as well, Tom, and the ongoing inquiry. And obviously it wasn't solved quickly. How do you keep your murder squad motivated then moving forward? I remember Charlie Craig, uh, Detective Chief Super, who I spoke about last week, used to say, listen, son, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. 
The senior investigating officers that I worked with all had these tricks up their sleeve to keep the team motivated and keep us all as fresh as possible. They would insist that you took your days off and had some downtime as well, which was very important to look after the welfare of the squad, the team, that they had family time and whatnot. How did you manage that with the teams that you worked with and built and, and managed, Tom? My early memories of our, our SIOs that there were horses for courses. There were some of the SIOs who were really good at the week-long murdering investigation. They had tremendous pace about them. They had some style about them. But then they ran out of steam. Then you had another group of them who were more plodding, much more methodical, but who in the long run you would bet on them getting there because they would sit for days on end reading statements, carefully reading statements and making notes. And they were you know, fastidious in, in what they did. There was a quiet confidence about them in which they used to impart upon their teams. There were different styles of detectives. And it's remarkable when you think about it, Simon, because in our young day, none of these men had been professionally trained. None of these men had been on SIO courses. There were no SIO courses. All of this they had picked up naturally and had learned from their senior officers, now long retired. And when you think about it, I always marvel at just how good a lot of them were. Their motivational skills, they made sure that people got their days off. They made sure that people got home to their families. They made sure there wasn't too much extracurricular activity, shall we say. They kept a steady ship. I remember one DCI used to say, always pay two compliments for every row you give. And that was his style. And he used to actually deliberately said he would pay two compliments for two to one, the two to one ratio, as he used to talk about. Joe Jackson told me that as well, Detective Super that you start on a positive when you want to make a point. You say, McLean, that was a great goal you scored on Saturday. Then he gave you a row for something in the middle, <laughs> and then he finished on something positive. Now go out there and let me see what you've got about you this week and get some results on the board. You know, it was a positive, negative, positive, and he always finished on that positive. And that, I've used that so many times, it works in every walk of life for everything that you do, whether it's verbal or in writing, uh, that you can disguise that row in the middle. And to me, that's good management, I think. So, Tom, Susan Maxwell was 1982 uh, in July. Yes, yes, 30th of July, 1982, um, Susan disappeared. And uh, for the next year, it was really a hard slog. There were lots of vehicle sightings and all the rest of it, and we worked very hard with Northumbria and Staffordshire. That was where her body was deposited. And they had an incident room, and Northumbria had an incident room, and we had an incident room, both in borders, and we tried our very best to make sure that all the information was cross-referenced. But it was getting, it was made harder and harder. And then, almost a year later, I remember it well, I was actually working on another murder investigation had been taken off Susan Maxwell because we had another murder investigation, which I was I was working on when we had a catastrophe on the 8th of July, 1983, when five-year-old Caroline Hogg went missing from her home in Portobello. Uh, Portobello is an old Victorian seaside resort just uh, east of Edinburgh, big long beach and lots of cafes, restaurants, a fun fair, all the things you would expect. 
long sloping beach, a safe beach for children. And it had suffered a bit during the, when foreign holidays took off and people went to Spain, it had, it had suffered a bit. And it was a wee bit down at heel, but it was still very, very popular uh, for local people who, would, who could come and their children could play safely on the beach and they could sit on the, on the promenade watching them and know that there was no deep water and they know that they could come to no harm when, when the tide was out. Tell us where you were and what you were doing and what your reaction was when you heard the news about Caroline Hogg being missing. Well, it, it, first, of course, she went missing at five o'clock on a Friday night. She had been at a party. She was still in a wee party for a lovely wee blonde girl. She wanted to go out and play for a, a couple of hours till about seven o'clock. She nagged her parents. At last, they, they agreed that she should go out and play with her pals. So she, she went out, was playing just locally in the street and disappeared. And so for the first two or three hours, of course, she's just another missing kid. And at Portobello particularly, there's missing kids every hour of every day because, you know, they drift away and they're found 10 minutes later, they're found an hour later, they're found two or three hours later, and everything's well. And 99% of, of missing kids, of course, turn up safe and well. But by the time darkness fell, it was very real concern for, for Caroline. And at that time, the divisional... Uh, resources notified the CID and they started to do more um, sort of concentrated searches of the immediate vicinity where she was last seen, which was just outside her, her house in Beach Lane. And of course, there was a press release issued about Caroline Hogg going missing. Well, the next morning, um, I was on duty on the other murder squad, the next morning, all hell broke loose because because she was such a lovely photogenic wee girl, hundreds of people turned out on the Saturday and the Sunday to help search for Caroline, to the extent that managing these people was difficult in itself. And uh, the Uniform Branch in, in the Leith Division that took in Portobello had a big job actually marshalling these folk and, and, and stopping them getting into trouble themselves. So, you know, large green areas and golf courses and all the rest were, were searched. And then as that failed, we began to think that something had gone seriously wrong. And I, I remember uh, sitting in the murder squad room at, at the police headquarters where I was based doing the other inquiry and my DCI coming in and saying, uh, that wee girl in Portobello, there's something wrong about that. And we started thinking, of course, immediately. Our, our minds went to to Susan, and we thought, "Oh no!" I remember the, just the dread of it. And so we carried on in our murder investigation. And then ten days later, the the body of a young girl was found in Leicestershire, and this turned out to be Caroline Hogg. And I remember distinctly the head of CID coming into the squad room and saying to the DCI in charge of our murder. Get the team, half your team, leave, I'll leave you three or four men. He said, all the rest, down to Portobello. Uh, so we literally tidied up what we had in relation to the other murder investigation and we dropped everything and we, and we headed down to Portobello and to Leith Police Station, which was the, the murder squad room. And I spent the next year and a bit there uh, investigating the, the murder of Caroline Hogg. You said that Caroline 
uh, body was found 10 days later down south in Leicestershire. Was that near to where Susan Maxwell had been found? Yes, it was within the same area, within 20 or 30 miles, but it was a different force area, of course. So now we had Lothian and Borders, we had Northumbria, we had Staffordshire, we had Leicestershire, all working away with these antiquated cards, all trying to coordinate with each other. Four forces of, of different sizes, different abilities, SIOs of different experiences. Different methodology. Yeah, that's right. There was different methodology within Scotland, let alone England. And the English forces, Leicestershire and, and Northumbria, worked in different ways. Staffordshire worked in a different way yet again. We were different. And we had four different forensic teams as well. Were there forensics, Tom, much? Well, that's right. The problem really was that in both uh, Susan and Caroline's case, the, there was little forensic evidence. There was, there was no forensic evidence at all uh, because it was a very, very hot summer. And the poor wee girls had been left dumped out in, in the open, probably very close to after they'd been abducted. We could tell that from the state of the bodies. And so there was very, very little left. DNA wasn't a thing at that time, of course, Tom, was it? No, no. DNA didn't even come over the horizon until later in the 1980s. So it wasn't even a... I mean, a DNA had obviously been recognised many years before, but in terms of its application for for criminal investigation, it hadn't been, it wasn't considered. So we were in a very, very difficult position because we had a, we had a travelling predatory paedophile. We almost certainly, he was a snatcher, that's to say that there was no dialogue. I mean, there was early witnesses who spoke to a man being with Caroline on the promenade and chatting to her and all the rest of it. But we were never convinced that was our man and that that was Caroline. There were so many kids going about at that time that was a lot of mistaken identity. We had witnesses on the promenade who were so desperate to help that they imagined that they had seen Caroline. And they were so burdened with guilt and responsibility, especially mothers of young children who were on the promenade. I remember speaking to one of them. She said, I was there with my daughter. I should have seen something. I should have seen something. And... And therefore, they read the papers, they watch the television, and they were there at the time, and they feel responsible, and they should have seen something, and therefore they do see something. And so you get this false memory thing coming in, which, of course, is absolutely understandable. And now it's a very well-known uh, psychological effect. But in terms of an investigation, boy, oh boy, that can, that can lead you up the wrong track. Really can. So... A decision was taken some years before um, th there had been the disaster of the Yorkshire Ripper case, where 13 linked murders had occurred in the Midlands and the north of England and had been administered separately and jointly through the index card system and had completely overwhelmed the system. And that was, the, that was really the occasion when it was realised that the old index card system was just not fit for purpose. And Lawrence Byford, who was then the Chief Inspector of Constabulary, uh, a very nice man, actually, a very experienced uh, detective, had spent a lot of time in his career in West Yorkshire, so he's, he was familiar with the, with the Yorkshire River. He carried out an investigation, and the Byford report 
it really changed the way that serious crime is investigated in the UK. And there were a number of recommendations, but there were really two that counted. One was the fact that the card index system was unsuitable now and that the, there had to be a major inquiry, computerised major inquiry programme established. And the Home Office were tasked with urgently designing and building uh, a Home Office large major inquiry system. But of course, in 1983, it was nowhere near completion. It was still very much in the building. But the other recommendation that uh, Lawrence Byford made was that in cases like ours, that uh, a kind of a supremo, uh, an officer in overall command, be appointed by the constituent forces, by the chief constables, who would hold responsibility for drawing all the strings together and making sure there were no lapses as had happened with the Yorkshire Ripper. I should have said that the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, had been interviewed by the police on nine occasions and had slipped through the net. And what was worse was that on some of the occasions after, after he had been interviewed, other murders had taken place. So not only had he not been caught, but young women's lives had been forfeit because of the inadequacy of the system. And so uh, an officer in overall command was appointed. And this is where you're either lucky or unlucky. Oh, there was a number of people who it could have been that were appointed, but we were very fortunate in that we got Hector Clark. Now, Hector was uh, an assistant chief constable crime in Northumbria at that time. He was a very, very experienced detective. He'd been SIO or deputy SIO in no less than 70 murder investigations, some of them very, very complex. I mean, at that time, the area around Newcastle was incredibly violent. So he was a very, very experienced guy. And he'd also been involved in the Yorkshire Ripper case as a young man, as a young detective. And he firmly believed, and I remember he told me, he said, we had good people, but we had poor systems. He said, and you need good people and good systems to succeed. He said, we had good people he said, very good detectives. He knew a lot of them, but we had poor systems. And he was absolutely determined to that we should not, that he should not fall into that trap again. He was an ideal candidate, really, Hector. He was very experienced. He was very, very well respected across the whole north of England. They all knew Hector Clark. They all met him and they all rated him. But the other thing he had going for him was that despite the fact he was not of the computer generation at all, I mean, Hector was born in 1934. He was very much a, a 1960s man. He had an open mind. One of the tricks I learned from Hector as he sat at the senior officers' conferences thereafter, he would often ask some of the junior staff, some of the admin staff, some of the filing clerkesses, what do they think? He didn't just listen to his senior officers. He wanted to tap into what other people were thinking as well, so nothing was missed. He was also a guy that would never do anything by telephone if he could do it by foot. And he, over the years that followed, he traveled ceaselessly around the partner forces, speaking to people, persuading, cajoling, um, motivating, you know, finding out what was going on. So he was, uh, we were very, very lucky to get Hector Clark, who 
I consider to be one of the, if not the finest detective I ever met. What he also did that I can remember vividly was he kept it in the public eye. He kept the media on board because, from my recollection, there was constant awareness and consciousness of this inquiry that was going on throughout the country. He kept the names, the names of Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell, emotive to almost anyone that was alive at that time or was of age at that time. Those names will still resonate because of, of what he managed to do. He did. He was very, very good at that. He, and, and in fact, in 1984, he pulled me off the squad and he said he, that he wanted me to go back up to headquarters and become the force information officer. And I would get promoted. So, I mean, I was a chief inspector at 34 years old. I, I was delighted. But he said to me, he said, look, he said, very, very simply this. He said, I want you to keep the public on their toes, but don't frighten them. Keep them on their toes, but don't frighten them. And that was it. That was the brief. <laughs> Hector was like that. He didn't waste words. He said, on you go, get on with it. And that's what we did with the help and assistance of our local press. I mean, we had a very good relationship at that time, much better relationship than I think they have now, to be honest, with our local press and broadcast media. That was my brief. Don't frighten the horses, but... Keep everybody engaged. Keep everybody conscious and aware of the dangers of child abduction, but don't terrify them. Because it goes, Hector used to say, he said, remember, he said, we're not only responsible for catching this guy, we've got to stop him offending again. That's, that's, that was his big fear. His big fear was that he would come back because they knew he would come back. We knew he would come back. If he wasn't dead or in prison, he would be back because people like that don't give up. There was something you said about the process there, about good processes and good people being required. And what struck me was that we've not really spoken about, and we will come back to it again, time and again in, in Crime Time Inc., because it's not something we need to discuss at length here. But I can't lose sight of the fact that this whole effort, this massive effort in this case over the whole length and breadth of the country, virtually has got all, all got to be presented in court at the end of the day when we get a positive result, and nobody knows when that may be. So everything, every single action that the police do in that process has to be recorded properly, has to be corroborated, uh, there has to be chains of evidence with the productions, uh, evidence that we're probably going to cover later in our podcasts, but these productions or physical evidence has to be stored. It has to be sealed and labelled and, and go to forensics to be dealt with properly to prevent contamination and ensure that there's that chain that can be spoken to in court at the end of the day, maybe years later. And this all has to be gathered together and kept for that day. When eventually, thankfully, we get the beast in front of a jury and a court, that's what we're going to talk about next time, Tom is when the success comes. And all that work and preparation and systems and hundreds of detectives over the length and breadth of the country working on it comes to fruition in a court of law in front of a jury. The point I was going to finish off with was about Hector Clark. He established three separate strands of the investigation. One was the investigations in the various force areas under the SIOs, so that's trace, eliminate suspects, etc., etc., the other was the, the prevention, and then there was the trap, because Hector was convinced that this guy would come back. 
And if he did come back, Hector wanted to be in a position to catch him. And so what we did was we uh, formed a plan. It was called Child Watch. And what happened was if, if there was a, a report of an abduction of a child at all, then traffic units would go to fixed points on the main roads, the arterial roads running north-south, because both Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg had been taken down, we thought, one of the A roads to the point of the deposition. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to put on traffic stop, if it was an abduction at all, we'd put on roadblocks at fixed points in the borders on the, on the route to the north of England and stop every car that came through to try and catch them. Now, that was a hugely expensive and problematic thing to do, but Hector was convinced. And he reckoned it was for a number of reasons. First of all, we might catch them. But secondly, it served to keep everybody on their toes. It served to keep traffic officers on their toes, uniformed officers on their toes. It served to keep the public on their toes too, because when they were stopped in these roadblocks, and there was quite a number of them over the years uh, where ch children had gone missing, and we'd put in a child watch and there'd be traffic jams and everything, police officers who questioned the motorists and searched their cars on many occasions told them it was about child abduction. And so not only did it serve as a mechanism to hopefully capture this person, but also it was raising the awareness and keeping up the tempo of the investigation. And so that's what we did. And we continued to do that. And in 1986, three years after Caroline, there was another abduction. Sarah Jane Harper went missing from near Leeds. Nothing to do with Scotland this time. She went missing in Leeds in West Yorkshire and her body was found in Nottinghamshire. But there were enough similarities to link that case too. And so now Hector Clark had got three linked murders involving six different police forces. That was the size of the task he had. The other thing we haven't mentioned yet is the introduction of computers. Hector Clark again decided to innovate, and he found out that Lothian and Borders Police was introducing a computer for, for crime recording, actually. It was for crime recording, but he persuaded the chief, Bill Sutherland, who's another fine man, incidentally, to use part of the capacity of that computer to build the first prototype of a computerised major index system. It was a Honeywell computer, and literally in the space of a week, the engineers from Honeywell, plus the police staff who knew a little bit about computers, cobbled together an index system, a computerised index system, which we used to administer the Caroline Hogg case. Now, this was an incredible gamble because we had the Caroline Hogg case on computer, we had the Susan Maxwell case on the card indexes, so there was a big risk there, but Hector was prepared to take that risk. And then when Sarah Harper was abducted and murdered, then uh, we got a lot of assistance. We got a lot of assistance from the Home Office, and by that time, the home system was beginning to come on stream, and so the whole investigation, the whole inquiry, was computerised. But during that initial three years from 83 to 86, uh, Hector Clark walked a tightrope. But of course he was right in what he thought because he thought that this culprit would come back and he was sure that if we had spread our net out fine enough in terms of prevention, 
and detection, we would catch them. And that's exactly what happened in July 1990. Next time on Crime Time Inc. And Hector Clark used to say it. We knew everything about this man except his name and address, he would say. <laughs> and we did. We knew everything about his patterns of behaviour. Mrs Beaton's cookbook was the sort of the, the go-to book for Victorian housewives. It was the good housekeeping book. And if you kept Mrs Beaton's cookbook, then you could look after a home, everything from domestic cleaning to recipes. And she had a famous recipe for hare soup. And the first line of Mrs Beaton's recipe for hare soup was, first catch the hare. <laughs> Brilliant. And my old boss, Jimmy Wilson, used to say, yeah, all this is great, we've got all this, but we've got to catch the hare. <laughs> <laughs>